0: When the Lord appears and welcomes us to glory, then I will say, My God, how great Thou art! That creatures of the dust who have willfully defied His will would be welcomed into eternal life. My God, how great Thou art! Would you take your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20? While you turn to Exodus 20... There are two things that I want to say. I remember one of them. The one is from Zach. Zach mentioned that due to the weather, the Sunday night Bible study that meets here at church will be postponed. So there will not be Sunday night Bible study here at church. The other one, Um, Mr. Anderson. When we get near the end of the service, in case I forget to mention it, could you be sure to go get the children to bring them back in to see the baptism? I'll I'll do my best to remember to mention it, but if, if I don't, could you help me? Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, the word of the Lord says, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed. You were, you were preparing yourself for the long haul. That's, uh, that's understandable. Uh, the title of the sermon for this morning is the good shepherd leads his people, and I don't intend to spend time studying the particular commandments yet. However, I do want to set a table for us about what is the nature of commandment giving. Who is the God who gives his people laws to live by? Why would we have laws to live by? We know places like wisdom literature, Psalm 119.43. The psalmist says, my hope is in your rule. My hope is in your rule. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. I will walk in the wide place. For I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and won't be put to shame. I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. That's a wise statement, but I wonder how common it is. Would would we say that as we look at the law of God, we say, I am so thankful for God's commands. Maybe not. In fact, We might even move quickly to a thankfulness that there's grace because the commands were too much for us to bear. And so we might have this supposed conflict between grace and command. I want you to understand that a God that commands his people the way they should go is a gracious God. Why has God given 613 commands. In Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, why has God given 613 commands in the Pentateuch? My answer to that is because he is a good shepherd. He is a good shepherd. That's why we have these commands. And my hope this morning is to simply show you how it is a great thing that God gives us commands. The people in this text, are standing at the base of the mountain of God. The mountain of God is moving and quaking like smoke. The mountain has, I believe, become a smoke element. And the trumpet blast grows louder and louder, thunder rages and lightning flashes, and God speaks to them out of the thunder. In Exodus chapter 20, we see, without mistake, God spoke the commands directly to his people. Look down in chapter 20 to verse 19, 18 and 19. As God spoke, the people were so terrified that they begged Moses to ask God to stop speaking to them directly. Now, there might be more than one motivation for them asking that God stop communicating to them directly. One of them might be that as they heard his command to them, they became overwhelmed with their inability to keep his law. Ask him to stop giving law. We're going to fail at what we've already heard. But the text says in verses 18 and 19, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. God came down to Mount Sinai, on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And so he went up. Uh, I, th- I started reading too late. No. So I, read, I read the wrong chapter. Did you see that? Excuse me, I have to turn a page in mind. <clears throat> now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpets, so we're in 2018, they were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. You remember the warning? God said, Go back down and tell the people not to come too close. If they cross the barrier, they'll die. And remember, Moses said, I'm sure it's fine. Here, God speaks. And the people seem to back up. And the Lord said to Moses, and the people said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. They were afraid that exposure to the holiness of God was a threat to their life. In verse 2 of chapter 20, we see a Preamble and a prologue of the law. So, in other words, what we're going to look at today in just those two verses is the preamble and the prologue of the law and the nature of a conquering sovereign rule in making treaty with those he has delivered. Okay? A sovereign conquering ruler making treaty. With those he has delivered. That's what we're going to see. And this is the prologue and the preamble to that. Let's look first at the preamble. The preamble is, this is a treaty between you and I. It is a treaty with Israel, the recipient, and the Lord your God is identified as the giver. And then look at the prologue. This explains the how the parties came to be together. And look at what God says. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What Yahweh had done for the people was truly outstanding. The pattern of this preamble, prologue, treaty relationship was well known to the people. The conqueror made a treaty with the conquered, in which he promises that he will benefit them in his protection as long as they abide by the terms of the treaty. In Exodus 20, we begin to see the law of God, the commands of God given to his people that will go from Exodus all the way through the remainder of the Pentateuch, 613 commands in all. The essence of God's command giving is seen right away in chapter 20. Who is the God who makes commands? Why does God make those commands? And what purpose do the commands have in our obedience and blessing? Who is He? Why give us commands? And what part do those commands play in our obedience and therefore blessing? Those are the three things that I want to look at this morning. But I want to give them to you and what I think will be more helpful, which is this, the three uses of the law. There are three uses of the law. The first use of the law is a mirror. Could you just say that back to me? It's a mirror. The law of God is a mirror. Now I'm going to explain to you how that mirror shows the good and the bad. I'm going to explain to you how that law shows us what's wrong and what's right. And that's really practical. When you first arrive at the mirror in the morning, you can identify a number of things that are wrong. And if things are going well, by the time you walk away from the mirror, you can also identify the things that are now right. If you're having one of those days. The first use of the law is to mirror. The second use of God's law is to guard. God's law protects you. I mentioned it in prayer. If we are to be a state who follows the law of God, we will protect children who aren't born yet. We won't murder because God's law says don't kill each other. So God's law protects us. The third use of the law, which is the one that probably receives most discussion, is that God's law guides us. His people. Mirror, guard, guide. So I asked you to say, Mirror, could you please say, His law guards us. Law guards. And then thirdly, His law guides us. Law guides. Okay. I only use that as a tool to help us hold on to those three uses of the law. Those are the three I want to explain this morning. And today is definitely going to be an abbreviated sermon as we look forward to our baptism service in just a moment for the first use of the law the mirror would you take your bible to matthew chapter 5 i would also add that i am not intending to unpack the details of genesis 21 and 2 which would be an exposition i am instead doing something that feels a bit topical i am preaching about what the law is and so for that each of our points is going to come from different texts of scripture now I don't feel like it's inadequate for me to preach that way. But I want to tell you, don't find yourself in a church that preaches exclusively that way, right? That just goes to topical sermons and jumps around from one text to the next and, and gives you something relevant to what's going on in the world. I, I would warn you against that sort of day, weekly habits of preaching in church. However, we'll endure it for today. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 the first thing i want you to see is that the mirror re- reveals to us evil so you're in Matthew 5:17 which is going to be my second portion i want to read for you from Romans 7 what then shall we say that the law is sin by no means yet if i had not been, if it had not been for the law i would not have known sin for i would not have known what it is to covet if the law hadn't said you shall not covet But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And then he's going to go on and explain what that means. As we stand in front of the law, it gives us a reflection by which we can assess, what am I like? What am I like? We can step in front of the mirror with the question, am I covetous? And by the mirror of the law, I become aware I am covetous. He goes on and says this at the end of verse 8. For apart from the law, sin lied dead. (laughs) Really? In what way did sin lie dead? Have you ever walked around the house a little bit before, first going to the mirror? And when you arrive at the mirror, you realize, oh, goodness, I've been walking around the house for like 15 minutes like this. And you realize what has happened over the night. That appearance was unknown to you until you stood in front of the mirror. Everyone else in the house knew, but they were too nice to say anything. It lied as though dead. I wasn't even aware it existed. And then he says, I was once alive apart from the law. I thought everything was fine. And then the law came to me. But when the command came, sin became alive and I died it became obvious to me. Augustine wrote that the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask the help of grace. The law says you need something else than what is standing in front of the mirror. And so not only does the law Reveal our evil, but the law reveals good. You're holding your place in Matthew 5, 17. And I want to also read from John 1. When Jesus arrives, and when John the Baptist announces, Behold, the Lamb of God. We start reading the narrative about the disciples who come and follow Jesus. And here's one account. Philip went and found Nathan and said this. We have been introduced to the one Moses in the law and the prophets wrote about. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Did you hear that? Philip goes to Nathan and says, hey, good news. We just found the one that the law wrote about. Don't kill. Don't covet. Honor your father and mother. Keep the Sabbath holy. And Philip runs to Nathan and goes, what all that was written about? He's walking over there. That's an incredible statement, isn't it? We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. Also from Matthew 5, Jesus gives his first great discourse in his earthly ministry, the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, I don't want you to think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I'm here to fulfill them. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So I'm telling you that I'm not the antithesis of the law. I'm the completion of the law. And it does not pass away. And if you think your righteousness will count as admission into the kingdom of God, you're wrong. Jesus is what is imaged in the law as good. The law is a mirror that reveals the contrast between sin and holiness. The law is about Christ Jesus. Listen to this statement. I have this underlined in bold green font in my notes. This means don't forget to say this. I would say to you, don't forget to listen to this. Jesus is the concluding statement of the law. Jesus is the concluding statement of the law. Philip could go to Nathan and say, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law. The law is a command from God. Um, Would you take a second and turn your Bibles to James chapter 2? Verse ten. Christian, what do you think about the law? James Chapter two, verse ten. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point becomes accountable for all of it for he who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder so let let's say let's say that you determine in your life that you can see how deplorable adultery is but you murder then you're guilty I wonder if I wonder if your response to that would be, oh, okay, so there are going to be some things in the mirror that are just always going to be wrong. I mean, I can't do the whole thing, so why try anything? Well, if we go on sinning, then we are not of the Father. And here's the law that mirrors our need. If, if, I, may, if I may just be really blunt and really practical, uh, if, if you get up in the morning and you look into the mirror... And you say, "Okay, we've got, I'm, I'm shaven. I've trimmed that unwelcomed hair from the edges of my ears. That where did that come from?" But I digress. And so you, you have all this stuff right, but you have this this one. Uh, do you call them eye boogers? You know that you know that that stuff in the inside of your eye is that what does everyone here call, ever call them eye boogers? Is that a pretty common term? I don't know. <laughs> That's not what you call them? You have other names for them. Please don't share them now. One is enough for the morning. And, and so you get up and, and you're like, okay, the hair is right. The, the facial hair is trimmed and, and the curling and the makeup and all this stuff. And you look and you're like, oh, but there's that one unfortunate, you know. And, and you walk away and go, man, well, can't win them all. Like the people in your life who you walk out of the bathroom and see are going to go, whoa, whoa, hey, Stop. You should fix that, right? Okay, so that's just a a weird practical example of the law. If you say, Well, you know, I can't keep all of them. I mean, I know I'm going to covet something I don't have and I really want, so, well, I might as well murder and commit adultery. I just want you to know that the way the law works is that mirrors your deadness, your ongoing deadness. Ongoing deadness. And then, you ever had a friend come to you and say, Hey, whoa, Uh, you have a real problem. Why do you always want to just talk about my problems? Because your problem is life and death. And I am your friend. I I don't want to talk to you about how you got your hair right, but have weird green stuff dripping from the inside of your eye. The law mirrors your deadness, friend. Jesus perfectly kept the law and invites us to union with him. Now, I'm going to talk about in the third point how the law guides us. We are invited to union with him, not only in his completion of the law, but our participation in the law. Okay, secondly, the law guards us. The law guards us. For this, we have Romans 13. Would you please turn your Bibles to Romans 13? The good shepherd gives us a law like a mirror. And there are dozens of practical illustrations of how thankful we are for the morning mirror. The law also guards the people of God. And represents a need for ongoing conscience. Romans 13, 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The passage opens with this statement. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Governance is, by definition, external obligation backed with a sanction if disobeyed. External obligation backed with a sanction if it's disobeyed. In other words, someone apart from you is a governing authority, therefore they proclaim instruction with the warning That if you violate my instruction, there will be punishment. So everyone be subject to governing authorities. Here's what I want to say. This is what we call the civil use of the law. God's law that we're studying in Exodus is the original governing authorities delivered from God. So when we talk about subject yourself to governing authorities, first has to be the law of God. It is To us, from God, a governing authority for civil use. We know the law can't change the heart. We say that law regulates sin, it doesn't produce repentance from sin. It can, in some ways, inhibit lawlessness by its threat of judgment. The law is a gift to protect the righteous from the unrighteous. When I was in college, we were, I worked for a guy, we did construction and built houses. And I remember one of the early days I was working with him, we were at a part in the process where we were putting a doorknob on the front door. And if you've ever thought about it, your small latch into the strike plate on your door is really offering you only a false sense of security. It is really not keeping you safe. Not to mention the glass panes that surround the house that are easily broken. So you have this sense of security, but I remember installing the doorknob, and he said, you know what good a doorknob is to a homeowner? I said, I don't know. And He said, it keeps the honest person on the outside honest. But if the person on the outside is dishonest, the doorknob's not going to do anything to change that. That's a little bit of the way the law guards us. We are constantly reminded about our coded conscience. Our coded conscience is necessary. Maybe you don't know what I mean by coded conscience. Uh, Paul asked the questions in Romans. He says, what about when Gentiles do what's good? And Paul's answer to that is, well, it's evident that they have the impression, the sort of fingerprint of their good creator on their heart. So when we have neighbors who still agree, I can't kill everyone that annoys me. That's the imprint of their creator on their heart. They were made by God. And they have a coded conscience. Now, we can list numbers of examples of how that conscience becomes increasingly hardened or diluted or seared. But that is the coded conscience. That's necessary for this effect of the law. Let me, let me take a minute to describe the 613 laws of God in the Pentateuch. And how we contrast that with our modern law. Have, maybe some of you in here have studied law. Maybe you are a lawyer or you have studied law or some other form of um, legal examination. As coded conscience erodes, modern societies often elect for exhaustive law codes. Exhaustive law codes. That means that if you've studied law and you've seen a law book, you think, oh, there's so many. That's what's called an exhaustive law code. That's a government that has said, we're going to try to address every potential situation to protect the people without some sort of ambiguous law. Like, be nice to each other. Uh, What? You know, I I think this is nice, and you think that is nice, so what, what is be nice? So instead, modern governments have tried to have this exhaustive law code. Now, the downside to that is that there's a lot of loopholes, right? Like, I was thinking about one, you know, if someone is taken into, they've been arrested and they've not been afforded their Miranda rights, there could be a loophole that they would get out of the consequence for what they had done because proper procedure hadn't been followed. And so that's the problem with these exhaustive law codes is that there are a lot of loopholes, and unfortunately sometimes people get away with things because of the loopholes. However, in ancient times, like this one in Exodus, the laws were more, paradigmatic. They were, they were like a paradigm. Live inside these sorts of instructions. They gave models for behavior, models of what was prohibited or punished, but didn't attempt to say everything. So, ancient laws gave guiding principles, samples, but not complete descriptions of everything that was right and wrong. The Israelites had to learn to see the underlying principle so not to be misled when applying the law too narrowly. All right, what that means is that an Israelite couldn't come and say, well, the law says that I have to give restitution if I stole someone's ox or sheep, so I'm careful to only steal goats so that I don't have to pay anything back. The law says that anyone who attacks father or mother should be put to death, but I attacked grandma, so I'm okay. The law says there are certain penalties that apply for hitting someone with your fist or with a stone, but I'm a kicker and a biter, so I'm not to be punished. But you see, God gave this paradigm. Not that it's only wrong to steal a sheep. It's wrong to steal the goat too, but that's the paradigm. Properly understood, the law guides us 600 And 13 points, properly understood, sum up everything God wants us to do. Now, there are 10 in front of us in Exodus 20. We're going to get to those next week. There are 10. These are called the Decalogue. Properly understood, those 10 completely guard God's people from sin. Now, Jesus is going to give a commentary on the 10 on the 613, and he's going to give two. Properly understood, those two completely guard God's people from sin. Matthew 22, 37-40, love God and love your neighbor. Properly understood, those two explain how God guards his people in his commands. However, there is this hardened conscience. As we think about how the hard conscience could approach the Mosaic Law and say, well, but I didn't strike with my hand, I kicked with my foot. Today, there are expressions of a hardened conscience. If you have someone cut you off in traffic, you don't get to chase them down and kill them for their offense. And you would be hard-pressed to find anyone in our society who would say that you do have that right. So the hardened conscience starts to contemplate, but what about a person who hasn't been born? What about a person who's not yet been delivered? We've not seen their face. Can we kill them? And right now in the state of Wisconsin, there is a very narrow margin of people who think one way or the other way. That is the law's provision, but the unfortunate reality of severed or dull conscience. We know it's wrong to murder. and So then we start to ask follow-up questions. What about murdering these people or those people? Is that okay? I want you to understand is You think about the law guarding you. The law is not a harsh burden from an angry, narrow-minded God. It is a shepherding provision of a merciful Lord to people who have fallen in sin and have often displayed that they have a propensity, a likelihood to continue to sin against each other. And God's law is a good provision that guards his people. So first, God's law mirrors for us what is broken in us and what is needed in Jesus. God's law guards us. As we'll see, it's going to lead his people Thirdly, God's law guides his people. God's law guides his people. Ephesians two eight. I need to move quickly here. Salvation is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So from this text, we understand that salvation is not by works, but undeniably works are christ glorifying the christian is called the work of god is created for christ or or in christ for work think about this with me as i go quickly god makes the heavens and the earth and all that is made displays his glory god makes man in his image that's the functioning image we do things like god does things in other words God displays his glory, so he commands his people, be fruitful and multiply, and spread this glory through all creation. Thirdly, God does the work of recreating fallen sinners. All three of those works of God, we are his workmanship, all the works of God have the same express conclusion, the glory of God. God's created things make visible the invisible. Namely, the fame of God. We are created this way. But we fell. We became futile. Dim. So how does God's law then guide this recreated people? Titus 2.14 says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. To purify for himself a people For his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So not by works, but undeniably for work, we have been saved. Namely, the works of God prepared beforehand. Let me say it this way. I think that it is complex for us as we converse about what is the place of the law for the people of God. I think it's complicated. But I want to say in this brief moment that without doubt, God's law is meant to be guiding us in obedience for blessing. God's law is meant to be guiding us. The Christian is free from the law as a system of salvation, but the Christian is under the law of Christ as a rule of life. The gospel can so easily be reduced to a self-help program meant to aid us in moral ethics. I'm going to say that again. The gospel can so easily be reduced to some sort of self-help program to aid us in our hope of moral ethics. In other words, we, we reduce the gospel to, well, good Christians don't do this, this, or this. And because I want to be a good Christian, I'm going to do better to not do that, that, and that. The moral norms that are laid out in the law for the people of God are a result of the grace of God that has saved His people in Jesus Christ. The moral norms are only ours as a result of the grace of God in Christ. So Christians are free from the law as a system to be saved, but Christians are under the law of Christ as a rule for us, as a guide for us. So, the law is a mirror, the law is a guard, and the law is a guide, and I want you to understand that these are provisions from a God who is a good shepherd. The law is not some sort of heavy taskmaster that was unpleasant, and then Christ came, and and grace came, and now everything's different and better. The same God who shepherds us in regeneration, shepherds us, shepherds us in direction of the law. However, I have to explain again that Christ, as we look at the mirror, is the radiant image that we have to see in the law. We have to be able to say, with Philip to Nathan, Jesus is the one I see radiantly reflecting in the law. You go to the law and see all the command, you have to see Jesus, who is the conclusion of all of the law. Jesus is the one who kept the law perfectly, and in doing so, guards his people from sin. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, who guides his sheep in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. These commands explain that our God is a holy and jealous God. If you read chapter 20, the first seven verses explain that our God is a holy and a jealous God. The law is meant to give an observable distinction to who are God's people. One of the commands that Christ has given to his people is to repent and be baptized. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus said to them, Go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever whoever does not believe will be condemned. What we're going to do for the remainder of our service this morning is observe command-keeping. Young ladies who are going to be baptized this morning, could you please come up to the front? Could you please come up front? You can just stand right here. Young ladies who are going to be baptized, right, right up here. Everyone, stand on the side. You got to go right up, right up to the middle. Okay, right up to the middle. Go ahead, right across there. Okay. We are so thankful that we get to participate today in your baptism, and we think that what you're saying to this congregation, to everyone who will see, is a very important part of Christ's command. There are a couple of things that we have talked to you about already. You have shared with deacons and elders as candidates for baptism your public expression of confession of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we feel confident that it is consistent that today, upon your baptism, you would be united with this local church in membership. After each one of the young ladies has been baptized, they would ask the congregation to affirm their request for membership. The elders and deacons have met with them for the reason of hearing their spoken testimony and then explaining, teaching them what it means to be a covenant member. That it means that they are expected to administer to us discipleship in the church's doctrine. They have to understand that doctrine. They have to affirm it. And it also means that they are standing before us as disciplers of them. So there's mutual spiritual care. So would the rest of you please stand with them? And ladies, would you take a step that way and turn around? And I want to read together the church covenant. I'll read it. You just follow along. This is the covenant that describes what our relationship is like in membership. Since we have been born again into the family of God through faith in Christ Jesus and have been baptized through immersion as a public testimony of our faith, we now covenant with one another to live our lives in obedience to the Bible. We will study the scriptures to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord submitting to the authority of the Bible. Congregation, as we speak this covenant to each other, at that point that we will study the Bible, would you simply say, we will? Next slide. We will proclaim the gospel of Christ to the lost and to the church, always ready to give testimony of our hope in Christ. We will. We will deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, walk uprightly within our world as a Christian example in a manner worthy of our calling. We will walk together, In Christian love, by encouraging one another, being slow to take offense, readily seeking reconciliation, and weeping and rejoicing together. We will walk in dependence on the Spirit of God, keeping prayer and the study of Scripture as our priority. We will participate actively in the church, faithfully giving ourselves to worship, the ordinances, discipline, and doctrine, while we exercise our spiritual gifts for serving each other in love. We will participate cheerfully in the financial support of the ministry of the church and the spread of the gospel from this, our own Jerusalem, to the outermost parts of the world. We will respect and submit to those who have oversight of the body as they follow the Lord, knowing that they must give an account to the Lord for our souls. We will contribute to an environment that strengthens joy and anticipation of our Lord's everlasting kingdom. So, ladies, as you look forward to joining the church in covenant membership today, this is a commitment that the church is expressing to you, a promise that they're making. And in your baptism and in your request of membership, we are asking you to affirm those same things. And you will say, we will. Say, we will. Thank you, ladies. Ladies, you can go and prepare for baptisms. You can go in that door. And parents, you can join them right now. Go ahead. Go ahead, ladies. I am going to pray. And then uh, the, the... Pastor Will's going to come and lead us in music again. Would you please pray with me? Father God, we are thankful for the instructions that you give to your people. It is clear to us that they are instructions of a good shepherd who is guiding us in mercy, in grace, and in faithful providence. We're thankful for the instruction you've given so that these young ladies can enter baptism water And confess to all of us who observe that they believe, that they trust in Christ, that their only hope is union in his righteousness. So Father, we thank you for the the gift you've given us today of these gospel truths from your word and this gospel expression of baptism. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Please remain standing and we'll sing together.